You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Now we turn your Bibles to the 12th chapter of John's Gospel, John chapter 12 and verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray together. Our great God, we thank you for your word and for the demands of the gospel. We thank you for this text that is before us, which reminds us of, of the call of the gospel and what it requires of us. And we are also reminded of the promises that you give that go along with those hard demands of the gospel. Help us as your people to appreciate what you have done for us in Christ and to see in these words of, from our Lord what it is that you expect of those who will follow you. We also want to see those things that you have promised as rewards for those who will follow you. We pray that you would be glorified here today through the preaching and teaching of your word. Be honored in our midst, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are in John chapter 12, uh, which means that we are covering the events in the last week of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is interesting to notice the, the amount of space that John gives um, text-wise to the life of Christ. I don't know if you noticed this, but the first 11 chapters of John's gospel cover 33 years in the life of Jesus. The last half of John's Gospel, chapters 12 through 21, cover one week in the life of the Lord Jesus, uh, the, His final week and His death and His resurrection. So 11 chapters on 33 years and roughly 11 or so chapters on the final week in the life of Jesus. Actually, if we were to be technically correct, since John begins his Gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he tells us where Jesus was and what He was doing back in the beginning in eternity past, we would say that the first 11 chapters of John's Gospel covers from eternity past all the way up to the final week. So eternity past plus those 33 years. In case you went to Clark Fork, eternity past means a long, long time ago. All the way up until the final week in the life of Jesus, that last half of John's Gospel is only one week, which means that the events of the last week were so significant and so important to John that it is as if we have been going at 90 miles an hour through the first 11 chapters, and now for the final week, he just hits the brakes. Everything just stops. And now it's detail upon detail and teaching upon teaching. It is these events in the last week that John is really zeroing in on, spends half of his gospel just on this last week in the life of Jesus. Uh, pretty significant things we find in chapter 12, the anointing for burial, the triumphal entry, and the Greeks seeking Jesus. And we got to that Greeks seeking Jesus last time, and we finished at verse 22, where Philip and Andrew came and told Jesus, there are some Greeks who wish to see you. And then Jesus gives the answer to that, or begins to teach in verse 23, and we're covering verses 23 to 26 today. 
you will notice there's a couple things, odd things about these verses, verses 23 to 26. One of the odd things about it is that this answer that Jesus gives or the teaching that Jesus gives seems to have nothing at all to do with the Greeks seeking him. Did you notice that? Philip and Andrew come to Jesus and present this to Jesus. There are some Greeks who wish to see you. And it's not that they just wanted to look at Jesus with their eyes, but they wanted to an interview with Jesus, some time to spend with Jesus, a, a conversation. They wanted to see him privately. That's the They could have just observed him from a distance. They came to Philip and Andrew because they wanted to talk with him. And so when Philip and Andrew came to him, then Jesus begins teaching about it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified, and uh, a grain of wheat falls into the ground, and it must die. It's going to produce a harvest. You have to hate this life and love the life to come. And if you do this, you'll be with me, and you will be honored by the Father. And you kind of wonder, what does that have to do with Greeks seeking Jesus? You might have expected Jesus to say, look, Philip and Andrew, here's what they're asking, and here's why it's okay. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he starts talking about his death and the meaning of his death. And at first glance or first reading it doesn't seem as if these things are even connected i think they are i think as we go through it you'll see that they're connected the second thing that is odd about it is that the greeks are never mentioned again through the rest of the 12th chapter in john in fact you read this we don't even know from john's record whether or not jesus met with the greeks they're not mentioned again for the rest of the chapter in fact john doesn't mention them again period so did jesus meet with these greeks who sought to spend some time with him did he set aside some time to meet with them? We don't know. What did he say to him, to them? We don't know. Now, if I had to guess, I would guess that Jesus did meet with them. And I would guess this simply because of the character of Jesus. And this is not the first time that he has had opportunities to talk with non-Jews. He has been gracious and kind to them. So if I had to speculate, I would say that Jesus probably did sit down and spend some time with them. Uh, I would also suggest that since a crowd is mentioned in verse 29 and the crowd is mentioned in verse 34, you can see them there the crowd in verse 34, the crowd in verse 29, I would suggest that probably these Greeks were part of the crowd. So Jesus' answer is directed to Philip and Andrew and to his disciples, but there are things that Jesus says which are obviously intended to be heard by more than just Philip and Andrew. So I think Jesus is speaking to them, but through them, past them, to everybody else who is listening, and the crowd is part of that, and the Greeks were probably part of this crowd. So I would suggest that they heard Jesus' answer, and then probably spend some time with Jesus. So let's look at the text, beginning in verse 23. This is Jesus' answer to them. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now this is not the first time we have read about the hour. What does John mean by the hour? He's speaking of a specific event and a specific time in the life of Jesus. All the way up until this point, John has told us, the hour was not yet. His hour had not yet come. His time had not yet come. We read it over and over again back in chapter 7. Do you remember when the Jews were seeking to seize him and lay hands on him? And John kept saying they tried to seize him, but his hour was not yet. His hour had not yet come. This is the first time in John's Gospel where John or Jesus says the hour has come. And from here on out, every time he mentions this hour, it is imminent. It has arrived. Jesus has come to this hour. This hour has come to Jesus. And by that, he means a specific event, a specific thing, a specific time when something was going to be accomplished. And you're going to see what he means here in just a moment. They, Jesus says in verse 23 that it is the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now just take that sentence. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus means something specific by that. That statement is something that the disciples would have expected Jesus to say, but Jesus means something that the disciples never would have expected Him to mean. Now let me explain that. He says something that they would have expected Him to say. Who is the Son of Man? 
The Son of Man was Jesus, one of Jesus' favorite words of referring to him, favorite ways of referring to himself. It was a title that he gave to himself. He borrowed it from the Old Testament. The Old Testament mentions one like the Son of Man or a Son of Man. It was a title from the Old Testament that Jesus took and used of himself, and he uses that title more than any other title when speaking of himself. And here he is doing it again. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is not the last time that Son of Man is mentioned in this chapter. Look down at verse uh, 34. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? It's mentioned also in chapter 13, verse 31, that the crowd asked him in verse 34, Who is the Son of Man? Now Jesus doesn't answer that question in the text, but when we get to it in 12, verse 34, I'm going to answer that question. We're going to look back at the Old Testament and talk about what is the Son of Man? What, what, what did that title mean? What did it signify? They understood, that is the disciples and the people who were listening to Jesus, they understood that the Son of Man was Jesus. They knew that He was talking about Himself. And here's why they would have expected Him to say what He said in verse 23 when He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That title, Son of Man, comes from, one of the places that comes from the Old Testament is Daniel chapter 7. I want you to listen to what Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 says about the Son of Man. And as you listen to this, I want you to ask yourself, does this at all fit with the context of John chapter 12? Here's what Daniel says. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him, that is to the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. Hold on a second. Does that sound like it fits the context of John 12, that prophecy? Have we talked about a king and a kingdom and being presented glory? Of course we have. John chapter 12, Jesus has just rode into Jerusalem, presented Himself as a king in accordance with Old Testament prophecies that predicted how the king would be presented to the people. He has done this to the hail and the praises and the love and adoration of the crowd as they have sung His praises and welcomed Him as a King. They have welcomed Him as a King. And now Jesus says that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And the disciples would have said, Yes! This is the time. This is when one like the Son of Man will be presented before the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days will give to Him a dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all the peoples and all the nations will serve Him and will worship Him. He is the fulfillment of this. He's the Son of Man. The time of the kingdom has come. Is that what Jesus was talking about when He said the Son of Man must be glorified? That's not. Because His very next statement is, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. What? We... Just a moment ago, we're thinking in terms of glory and dominion and all the people serving Him. Daniel said all the peoples and all the nations will serve Him and His kingdom will endure forever. It's an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's what we're thinking of. And now He is talking about death and dying and harvest. See, those two things didn't go together. They expected when Jesus said, the time has come, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, They're thinking kingdom. And he knows that he has to correct their understanding and their expectation. He is the Son of Man. He is affirming that. But the hour has come for him to be glorified. That's not kingdom. 
He's speaking of his death, which is why he says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Now, Jesus is describing his death. Just keep that in mind. He's not describing the death of his servants or the death of martyrs. Jesus here is describing his death. And here is the principle. Jesus is giving an agricultural analogy that would have been familiar to anybody who grew up in an agrarian society. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Now, we are familiar with that concept, and even though it seems like it might be eight months before we end up planting our garden, it's only a matter of a couple months, despite what the outside weather felt like on the way here. It's only a couple of months away before we're going to be planting seeds in the ground. So here's the principle. Unless the farmer is willing to take the seed and let the seed die and be put into the earth, the seed will remain alone. Because unless the seed dies, goes into the earth, and rots and decays and dies and vanishes away, unless that happens, that seed will never produce a harvest. But the farmer knows that as long as the seed is in the packet, the seed will never produce a harvest. But if he sacrifices the seed, what he gets back from the seed is payment hundredsfold more than what he sacrifices to put into the ground. The seed has to die, but if the seed dies, it produces a harvest that is plentiful and that is will adequately reward the farmer for his sacrifice. Now Jesus is using that analogy to speak of this great principle, that from death, by God's providence and design, from his death would come a harvest of the nations. Here's where what Jesus says in verses 23 and 24 fits the context and and is quite appropriate given what the disciples have come to him with. The disciples have come to him with Greeks who wish to see him. And now Jesus begins to talk about his death and what his death would do. And as he describes his death, it's the seed that goes into the ground. It must die, and it will produce a harvest. What is the harvest? Or better yet, who is the harvest? The harvest that comes from the death of Christ is not just saved people from the Jewish nation, but saved people from every nation. The Greeks who were standing there who heard this answer, they represent the harvest. These are men whom God had called out of the nations who have come, and they've come seeking Jesus. They've come wanting to talk with Him. It is Greeks, it is people, Gentiles from every nation on the face of the earth that God brings as a harvest out of the death of Christ. His death, His sacrifice, His atoning sacrifice pays the sin debt for all and any who will believe and as a result of His sacrifice on the cross, God would bring a harvest of the nations. Jesus didn't come to offer to the Jews a kingdom without a cross. He came to offer to the Jews a kingdom that would come through the cross. Because of the cross... There would be a harvest of people, men from every nation who would serve him. The kingdom is yet to come. The cross must come first. Jesus knew that, and that is what he's telling the disciples. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Is the cross itself a glorious thing? Was Jesus glorified on the cross? Jesus was glorified through the cross. I think it's adequate to say that the Father was even glorified by sacrificing his Son on the cross. The cross is a glorious thing from the perspective of of looking at the cross through the eyes of faith. When you and I, as believers, look at the cross, we see the glory of the cross. And how is it glorious? Because on the cross, the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the truth of God was vindicated. His wrath upon sin was poured out. We see the righteousness of God and His long-suffering toward mercy displayed in the cross of Christ. So it is a glorious thing. We can even speak of the cross being a glorious thing. And on the cross and through the cross, the Son of Man was glorified. And the hour has come for Him to be glorified. And He would glorify the name of the Father through dying on the cross. That is why Jesus says in verse 27, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? 
But for this purpose I came to this hour. That is, to the hour of His death, to the time of His death. Father, glorify Your name. Jesus knew that in going to the cross and facing that hour, that He would bring glory to God the Father. So the cross is a glorious thing. And in the cross, the Son of Man was glorified. So it was a necessary death. J.C. Ryle says, The death of Christ was the life of the world. And from it, as a most prolific seed, was to spring an enormous harvest of blessing to souls and of glory to God. His substitution on the cross, His atoning death, were to be the beginning of untold blessing to a lost world. So the Jews are expecting a kingdom. Everybody who has watched Him enter into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, they're expecting a kingdom. They're expecting that that's the glory He has in mind. He does have glory in mind, but not the glory of a kingdom. He has the glory of a cross in mind. The cross must come before the kingdom could come. And so that's the appropriateness of this context. And the principle of verse 24 is now applied in verse 25. Look at verse 25. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. Now Jesus in verse 25 is not describing his death or his attitude toward life. He is now applying this principle that life comes through death. He is now applying this to the disciples. And this is where we get into the demands of the gospel. Verse 25 is a familiar analogy or a familiar phrase because we find Jesus saying this on more than one occasion. This is not the only place where he kind of laid down the demands of the gospel. In Matthew chapter 10, I'll give you, I'll read to you two other parallel passages. Matthew chapter 10, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. That's paralleled in Luke chapter 14 that Dave read before the the service. Matthew chapter 16, Then Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And then we have Luke recording another instance where Jesus said this very same thing in connection with His teaching on His second coming. So, taking all of the accounts in the Gospels where this type of language is used of hating this life and longing for the life to come or loving this life and losing the life to come, the, uh, that language is used by Jesus on at least four different occasions. This is the demands of the Gospel. That's why He says the Gospel requires that you take up your cross and that you follow Him. That you consider that your love for Him as, uh, as far greater than your love for your mother, or your father, your brothers and sisters, or your children. And that we must love Christ more than we love any of those other things. That's the demands of the gospel. That is a strong statement and one that is intended to shock us. Because the notion that salvation or that the gospel presents a salvation that is easy to believe and easy to attain and easy to live is a fabrication straight from the pit of hell. Pit of hell. The gospel is not easy. And the demands of the gospel are not simple. And they're not easy. And they're not small. The demands of the gospel are everything. We must be willing to exchange this life and everything with it for Christ. So Jesus presents a paradox. If you love this life, you lose it. That's a paradox. The more you love this life, the more you lose it. So if by this life, by the way, Jesus means all of the accoutrements and the attachments and the loves, the pleasures, the recognition, the honor, the possessions, the comforts, the conveniences, everything that this world has to offer. If that's what you love, and that's what you live for, then that's what you lose. And there are two contrasts in the verse. The contrast between loving something and hating something, and the contrast between this life and the life to come. If you love this life, 
then you lose this life. If this is the life you love, then death is what you get. Eternal death. Because to love everything of this life is to neglect the life that is to come and entrance into the life that is to come. And it is to sacrifice and to lose not just this life, but it's a double loss. Not only do you lose this life because this life must come to an end, but you lose the life to come as well. That's the double loss. Have you ever read John Steinbeck's novel of Mice and Men? There's a character in there that when I read that in high school, I fell in love with, and it was, I think it's Lenny is his name. It's the older, the bigger guy. Uh, the big kind of clumsy oaf who's not quite right. And then there's George, the smaller guy who's got it all together. And Lenny is the character who uh, is sort of parodied in the Looney Tunes thing where the Looney Tunes character, the big furry guy, says, I'm going to love him and rub him and pet him and squeeze him, George. That's an exact, yeah. So Lenny is that character. Lenny is the character in Of Mice and Men who loves things and cherishes things but doesn't realize the strength of the grip that he has on the things that he loves and cherishes and wants to protect. And in the story of Mice and Men, Lenny actually ends up killing the things that he loves, the mice or the people that he is trying to cherish and protect because he grips them so hard. Every time I read this verse, I think of Lenny. I don't know when that connection was made to me, what I heard or what I saw, but that is exactly the picture that you and I are to get in our minds. When you love something so much that you cling to it, you end up losing the very thing that you love. Matthew Henry, writing on this verse, says, Many a man hugs himself to death. I love the imagery of that. Many a man hugs himself to death and loses his life by overloving it. He that so loves his animal life as to indulge his appetite and make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof shall thereby shorten his days, shall lose the life he is so fond of, and another infinitely better. He that is so much in love with the life of the body and the ornaments and delights of it as for fear of exposing it or them to deny Christ, he shall lose it. That is, lose a real happiness in the other world while he thinks to secure an imaginary one in this. That's the irony of it. You think you are securing happiness by loving this life and all that is here. And the irony of it is that you end up sacrificing infinite happiness because you love too much a finite happiness. So if you love life here, you lose the life to come. And the paradox of Scripture is you hate, that is, you by comparison, you love far less the things of this life and you gain the life to come. By hate, Jesus doesn't mean an actual morbid hatred. He doesn't mean that you and I should walk around and say, I hate my wife. I hate my kids, I hate my job, I hate my church, I hate my pastor, I hate my friends, I hate fun, I hate sunshine, I hate anything enjoyable, and I'm just going to sit and detest everything good that God has put in my life. That's not what he's talking about. We honor God when we rejoice in those things and we enjoy the things that he has given to us and and love them to a degree. But this is a, a Hebraism, it's a Hebrew way of speaking that puts two things side by side and compares them. And the point is this, you and I are to love Christ and the life that is to come so much that anything in this life that threatens my affection for Him, I am, I am readily willing to dispatch with and to leave behind and to let go simply that I may have Him. Anytime anything conflicts with Christ, I'm willing to let go of that so that my enjoyments of this life and my affections for all things here seem like hatred in comparison to the love that I have for Christ. So if I love this life, I cling to it, I actually end up strangling it, hugging myself to death, and I lose eternal life because I am not willing to let go of this life. And if I love the life to come, 
then not only do I get this life, but I also get what? I get life eternal, which is infinite and is eternal. That's the demands of the gospel. Now, to clarify this so that you and I don't think wrongly about what Jesus is saying, let me offer a few statements of clarification. This is the hard call of the gospel. And anybody who would teach that the gospel is easy to believe and that all you have to do is just come to Jesus, you can have your best life now, that is a lie from the pit of hell. That is not the gospel. That is the exact opposite of what Jesus is teaching. Jesus says you must hate this life compared to loving me and the life to come if you wish to have eternal life. Second, even though we recognize that this is the hard call of the gospel, and we ought to accept it as such, we also recognize that the love that we have for the life to come and our hatred for this life or our dislike or less love for this life that we are to have is not in itself a work of our flesh. That is to say that this type of affection for Christ and the world to come is not something that we muster up in order to gain eternal life. We don't sit back and, and navel gaze and reflect upon ourselves and say, wow, I really need to love Christ more and I really need to muster up more love for Him so that if I muster up more love for Him, I will then be worthy of being given eternal life. That's not what Jesus is saying. We have to remember that the love and affection that we have for Christ is not something that the natural man can create in his own heart. The love and affection that we have for Christ is itself the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts that He does in us. This is the mark of a true believer. It's the mark of a true believer. Jesus is not here saying that true faith can be identified by its perfection, but by its affection. It's not that my faith is perfect, and so now I can get eternal life, or I have a perfect love for Christ, and therefore I merit eternal life. It is that this is the mark of the true believer. The true believer is one whose affection for Christ is so strong, and his love for the things to come, and for Christ, and all that he represents, that his love and desire and attachment to this world is nothing. It's hatred by comparison. That's the mark of a true believer. But that's not the work of my heart. I don't generate that in myself. That's the work of the Spirit of God in me. Who does that work in me and changes my heart and changes my affections and changes my desires so that this is what marks a true believer. A love for Christ and not a love for this world. You love this world? You will never lay hold of Christ. Because He will never be appealing to you because you love this world. You can't serve two masters. So you must abandon this world and any hope of satisfaction or joy or contentment in this life and turn your affections entirely toward Jesus Christ and lay hold of Him. And when you do that, and your affection for Him is as it should be, then you are saved. That's the mark of a genuine believer. And then you get life which is to come. Now this would have been, uh, this would have been an appropriate corrective for the crowd given who the, who the crowd was and what they had just done. Remember what they had just done. They had just welcomed Him into Jerusalem as their King. They have praised Him. They have sang His praises. Were all of those people, those countless tens of thousands of people who witnessed the triumphal entry, were they believers? They weren't. Were they genuine believers? No. So with the crowds having sung His praises, this is the Gospel. And Jesus is saying, it's not everybody here who has professed love for Me, it's not everybody here who has sung My praises that will get eternal life. It is the one who is marked by this, an affection for Me, an affection for the life to come, who hates this life, he keeps it for eternal life. Are you willing to die for the sake of the gospel? Is everything else nothing in comparison to the gospel? That's the question. It's really a deep heart issue. And you and I ought to read these verses and verses like this which call us to lay down our lives, take up our cross, die to ourselves, the world crucified to us and us to the world, and ask ourselves, does this describe me? Or am I just a Christian because it's easy to be a Christian? 
So it's not perfection, but it is our affection. And by the way, it's not the doing of this, but it is the willingness to do this that marks the Christian. It might be that you and I are never asked to sacrifice much of anything in this world for Christ. But the question is, am I willing to? This type of demands from the gospel makes sense in other cultures where they're not persecuted and they're not chased for their faith and they don't have to worry about sacrificing. Uh, they, uh, sorry, th- this type of this type of language makes sense in other cultures where they are persecuted, they are chased for their faith, they do have to sacrifice. Coming to Christ means signing their own death warrant. They have when they're baptized, that means that they are hunted and hated from that day forth, where they are cast out from their families and their friends and their communities, and, they, and they're put out of their synagogues and put out of their mosques. Other people in other cultures who read these words think that's right, to go to Christ, to embrace Him, to love Him, is to turn my back on everything in this world. We have it easy in our culture when we can embrace Christ and have the world. And we get all the comforts and conveniences of this world and never might ever be asked to sacrifice anything for the sake of Christ. But the question is not, do I have to, but am I willing to? If there is something that competes for my affections for Jesus Christ, am I willing to turn my back on that and have Him and Him alone? Am I willing, are you willing, to give up everything, even life itself, for the sake of the gospel? Is Christ and the gospel that precious to you? Verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. What type of following is he talking about? Coming to the front, walking an aisle, signing a card, joining a church. What is this following? What has he just described about his own path? Verse 24, or 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's the grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies. And from that death is going to be harvest. The, the road to the kingdom is through the cross. And he has just described his own sacrifice and his own death. And he has told us you must be willing and able and, and, and your affection set in order that you would gladly die for me if you are going to be worthy of me. The one who is a true believer is marked by an affection for Christ. So when he says the one who serves me must follow me, he is saying if you are going to follow me, it is going to be the path that I have just described. Are you willing to follow Jesus all the way through to the point of death if necessary, knowing that with your eyes fixed on the eternal reward and the life to come, that you can say it is worth it? That's the demand of the Gospel. Now look at the rewards. Because Jesus is not asking something of us without reminding us of what the Gospel offers as a reward to those who do do this. Verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And now there are two rewards. And where I am there my servant will be also. That's the first reward. That is the eternal presence of Christ. Now for a Christian, that is sufficient. That is enough. Any Christian would be willing to read this or willing to hear those words, where I am, there my servant will be also. And any true believer would be satisfied to say, that's enough, even with nothing else. If I could just be where Christ is, that would be sufficient for me. That would be enough of a reward to know that in His house, one day in His house is worth a thousand outside. And to be with Christ is far better than anything that this world could offer. The song that Megan sang was sort of a, a, a what would you call it, a remake of the Cast Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Um, well, I'm butchering it now. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. To be with Him and to know Him and to be in His presence for all of eternity, even if there were no other reward, that would be worth giving up everything that the world has to offer. Are you willing to say that? Do you view 
presence with Christ for all of eternity, even with nothing else, just to be with Him for all of eternity, worth giving up everything that this world has to offer? The answer to that question says a lot about the condition and the affections of our hearts. There is a second reward at the end of verse 26. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now that is profound, and I think that is one of the most amazing sentences in this whole passage. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. To be honored by God the Father for our service to His Son is truly an amazing, amazing reward. That the God of the universe, the Father, would honor a servant of Christ. Now why does God honor us? Because we're honorable? Because we're spanky? Because we're great? No. The Father honors those who serve His Son. And He honors us not because we are worthy of that honor, but because we have given honorable service to His Son and honorable affection to His Son. So here's the promise. If you serve Me, the Father will honor you. Now we are familiar with the idea of receiving honors and getting an honor. Um, When the President wants to honor somebody for doing something noble or for doing something great, He will give him a position at the State of the Union address, a little seat up in the balcony and all of that jazz. I guess technically we should say it used to be that you had to do something honorable or worthy or great to get a position at the State of the Union address. Anymore, you just have to come out as being the first openly gay person in your occupation or your sport, and you get a shout-out on Twitter, and you get a phone call from the president. In our culture, we shame the things that are honorable, and we honor the things that are shameful, but we at least understand what it means to receive honor from honorable people. Tonight, there are there is a broadcast on television. It's the Grammys, the Emmys, the Oscars, the country music, whatever. They have one of these every two weeks where they all sit around and have a big love fest and they pat each other on the back and say, you're the best. No, you're the best. No, you're... Okay, we're both the best. Yes, we are. They give each other rewards. They show each other. They worship each other. And the rest of us are just supposed to sit out here in TV land and say, oh, I wish I was like them, getting all that honor from people. We understand the concept of getting honor. How much more is the honor of the Father worth than all of the honors all the prizes, all of the medals, gold, silver, and bronze, everything else that this world has to offer. And here's the beautiful thing about the honor that the Father gives. It is an eternal honor. It will never perish or vanish away. Who won Best Actor in 2004? Anybody know? If you know that, you have way too much time in your hands. Way too much free time. Who won Best Actor in 2004? Nobody knows that. Now, if I, if I gave you the name, you probably might recognize it. You're going to recognize it in 20 years? Maybe when you read their obituary, you'll recognize the name. Oh, yeah, they got that. I'll read it in the obituary. They, were, they won Best Actor in 2004. That was only 10 years ago. Is anybody going to matter? In a, is anybody going to care in 100 years? How about 10,000 years? But 10,000 years from now, the honor that the Father gives to those who have served Christ and have sacrificed for Him, that honor will go on and on and on for all of eternity, and it will never diminish in its value. And it is the best honor that can be given because of the one who bestows the honor. Receiving honor from the president or receiving honors from the Olympic Committee or receiving honor from Hollywood or the culture or academia, none of those things should matter to us. We should care nothing for any of those things. Every reward and every honor that a man or a culture or a society or a government could bestow upon any individual is small and insignificant and absolutely useless. It will all vanish. It will all burn up. It will all go away. All of it. But the honor that the Father bestows... A million years from now, that will be just as valuable and just as real and just as significant as the day that we enter into His kingdom and hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And all that we have sacrificed in the meantime to receive that honor will seem like nothing. 
in comparison to just being honored by the Father. You and I are going to have to choose at some point, all of us will, what type of honor we desire and what type of honor we live for, long for, and where our affections are. Do you live for this world? Concerned about this world? Is that really what consumes your thoughts and your your working hours and your working days and your moments and your attention and your affection is the things of this world? Are you willing to turn your back on the things of this world and love and show your affection to Jesus Christ and willing to sacrifice all of that just to have a small piece of Him? And His promise to you is that the one who serves Him will be where He is and the Father will honor you. That is a significant promise. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we are very grateful to You for what you have promised us in the gospel of your Son. We thank you that you have loved us and that you have set your affections upon us and that you have called us to yourself. All of these things are gifts of your grace and even the love that we have for you as as small as it is and as incomplete and inadequate as we feel that it is, it is a work of your grace in our hearts. We thank you that you have changed our hearts and given us an affection for Christ. We thank you that you have made him precious to us so that we might value him And we pray that you would increase our love for you and our desires and our affections for Christ still more and more. May we see the the value of the things in this world as nothing compared to Christ. And may we love him. Work this work in our heart that you would be glorified in and through your church. And we thank you that we have a part in that. May you be the sole affection of our hearts and the longing of our desires. And may we find fulfillment of those things only in Christ and in Christ alone. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.